We recently returned from a trip to Greece. Uh, we were following in the steps of Paul on a 10-day tour, and we followed in his steps through his second missionary journey, which is found in Acts 16 through 18. Uh, I have a couple maps that I want to show you. Uh, the first one shows the beginning of his journey, starting in, down here in Jerusalem and going all the way, and he finally makes it to Corinth, where he spends a year and a half in Corinth before traveling back to Jerusalem. And now zooming in a little bit, so this is, this is uh, you know, modern-day Greece right here. Uh, I'm about to read the passage. You're going to hear me reference Troas. You're going to hear me reference this island, Samothrace, right here. We saw this island. Uh, you're going to hear me reference Neapolis, and you're going to hear me reference Philippi, which is what we'll focus on today, his time in Philippi. Next week, we'll focus on his time in Thessalonica and Berea, and then the next week, his time in Athens, and then the following week, his time in Corinth. But we were a little surprised that Philippi reminded us of another city that we're very familiar with. Does this look familiar to you guys? Not the ancient ruins, but the mountain in the background, kind of look like Pikes Peak, maybe? We thought, you know, Philippi has its own Pikes Peak. Kind of interesting. Uh, one other uh, picture I wanted to show you. This, we were in Philippi on my birthday. And so this is the ancient Greek theater dating back to 400 B.C., 400 years prior to Christ. And I'm standing there and some of the folks from our group saying happy birthday to me from a Greek theater in Philippi, which is quite an experience. But uh, we're going to be focusing on Paul's time in Philippi this morning, and I'm going to highlight some lessons that we learned from his time there. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. Please stand and honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 11 through 34, and this is the very inspired Word of God. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation." And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have acted decisively in space-time history through actual people and actual places in such a way that we are here today because of this work that you've done. We're grateful you revealed yourself to us. I pray as we consider the work that you did in Philippi that we will learn from it so that you will use us to continue to advance this incredible good news for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Luke tells us about a couple of key events that happened here in Philippi. He mentions the story with Lydia. He mentions the story with the jailer. And I think it's interesting to just pause and consider there were many other stories he could have told us. Many other people who came to Christ, many other people, you know, I'm sure interesting stories. He, he only gives us these stories, and there's a reason for these particular stories. And I just want to highlight some of the lessons that I think we learn from these particular stories. Uh, first of all, Christianity advances through unlikely people and circumstances. Now, when I use the word unlikely, I, I mean unexpected Christianity advances through people you might not expect and through circumstances that you might not expect. Let me mention several. First of all, consider the call to Greece. Look back at Acts 16, verse 6, where it says that, that Paul says he was forbidden from going to Asia. He, he, he wanted to go to Asia, and I assume he means by that Ephesus. He'll eventually be allowed to go to Ephesus, but he's prevented from going there because God has a plan for him to go to Greece. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Acts 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. When it says Macedonia, Macedonia is present day Greece. Notice it says this Macedonian man appeared to Paul. What did that look like? Who was it? Was it somebody we would recognize from history? I'm not sure. Either way, there's a Greek man, a Macedonian man, who appears to Paul and says, please come to Macedonia. And of course, they respond to the call and they go. Why? Why does God call them to go to Greece? Uh, I want to mention several possible reasons. One, uh, it's a call to go outward. It's a call to extend the gospel outward. Uh, the instinct might be, let's stay close to Israel. Let's stay close to Jerusalem. But the call is to go out to all nations. And so it's a call to keep going westward. And they do. Uh, secondly, 
God tells Paul he has people there. For example, in chapter 18, verse 10, God says, I have people in Corinth. So go there and stay there and preach the gospel there because there are many who are going to come to Christ. I have people there. They are my people. They are my chosen people who are there. Therefore, go there. Third, I think we can see historically how God has sort of been paving the way for the gospel to make its way westward and ultimately you know, to Rome by the end of Acts. Uh, first of all, it happens during what's called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman period of peace. So there's no wars going on. And therefore, travel is possible. Paul, the apostles, are able to travel freely. And by the way, the Romans are really big on building these roads everywhere. Roads everywhere. All roads lead to Rome, right? And so why is that significant? Because Paul and the apostles are able to relatively efficiently take the gospel westward. And they do. They're able to travel along these roads. In fact, in this picture right here, uh, the Ignatian Way, the Ignatian Road is right here. Paul traveled along this very road. We got to walk along it. And uh, that we, this is the ancient Agora of Philippi in the background. And this is the Ignatian Way, which Paul traveled along in order to take the gospel. And the roads uh, providentially made it possible for the gospel to spread as it did. Uh, also, at this time, there was this common language that virtually everyone knew and everyone used called Koine Greek. It happens to be the language of our New Testament. And so everyone had this common language, and therefore taking the gospel to these various places was very possible because of the language that preceded the spread of the gospel. So we can see how God took these circumstances, these people that you might not think about. It might not recognize, but he used it in order to advance the faith. Secondly, I want you to consider the example of Lydia. When Paul arrives in Philippi, he follows his normal pattern. What's the normal pattern? You go to the Jewish synagogue and you preach the gospel there first. But guess what? There's not a synagogue in Philippi. Why? Possibly it's further from Jerusalem. And, and in order to have a synagogue, it required that you have 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue, a, a gathering, a Jewish gathering. So apparently they don't have that in Philippi. And instead, there's a group of ladies meeting, not inside the city, because they don't have the official number to meet inside the city. So it's kind of this sort of ragtag group meeting outside the city, outside the city walls, meeting out by this river. And Paul his custom is to go to the Jews first. So he goes to the Jews first. They happen to be a group of ladies meeting down by the river. And he goes and meets with them and shares the gospel with them. And we see the first European convert named Lydia, the first European baptism. And it happens. And I think it's kind of unexpected. You know, it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, it's not glamorous. It's, it's down by the river. It's just a group of, of ladies meeting down by the river. And this is the first convert in Europe. Third, consider the example of Paul and Silas in prison. I actually have a picture here. of This is believed to be a prison in Philippi, and so it's believed this is possible, likely, in the prison area where Paul and Silas would have been imprisoned. And uh, they end up there. They end up getting beaten. This is one of the three times that Paul mentions being beaten because of the gospel. And, uh, of course, it tells us in Acts 16.25 that what did they do in response? They sang hymns to God and prayed at midnight. I think if I'd been beaten and imprisoned, I'm not sure I'd be up singing hymns at midnight. But this is what they do. And, of course, God provides a miraculous 
earthquake, which miraculously allows them to escape, but they don't escape, as I think I, I, think I would run as fast as I could, right? What do they do? They stay behind. Why? To do ministry, to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer who comes to Christ and his family comes to Christ and I, I assume becomes a key foundational part of the church there in Philippi. I, I just think about how, how different, if we were making up the story of a message that started in Jerusalem and spread all the way to the Western world and reached us today, I just don't think this is how we would write it. I think Luke writes it this way because it's the way it happened. And just think about how, how unexpected it is. It involves a group of ladies outside the city meeting there for prayer. Not, not an official group, not an official gathering in the city. A group of ladies outside the city. I don't think I would write my heroes in the story as being in prison. And if I did have them being in prison and God miraculously provided a way out, I think I would draw a lot of attention to that. I would have a tendency to draw attention to the miraculous. Right? That would be what I would emphasize. God delivered them and they got out. But that's not the emphasis here in the story. The emphasis in the story is they stayed behind to do ministry. The miracle was to, to, to help the message. And they share the message and the person comes to Christ. If you and I were trying to figure out a strategy, how are we going to go reach Philippi, an unreached city, and go back to the theater? I have a feeling our strategy would be, let's try to fill this theater. It can seat 5,000 people. Let's get 5,000 people there. Let's come up with a real nice, powerful, nicely packaged message. And let's see them all come to Christ. And let's see the whole city come to Christ. And maybe have like kind of a seven-day revival. And every night they just keep coming back. And we keep having them, you know, make decisions. I mean, isn't that our instinct? Let's make it big. Let's have a big group. Let's do a production. Isn't that sort of the impulse? And I just want you to see that that's not how it happens here. God advances his message in, in ways that are unlikely, in circumstances that are unlikely, through people who are unlikely. Um, and we learn that this is the way God often advances his kingdom. And so here's my question for you. What are the circumstances that you're in in your life right now that God might want to be using you right now to advance the gospel? You just look at it as an annoying circumstance you're in. How can I get through this? But God says, that's right where I have you for that very reason, and I want to use you for my glory right in that particular situation. Who are the people that God has placed in your life right now that he's wanting to use you? Who's the Lydia in your life? Who's the Philippian jailer in your life that God is calling you and wanting to use you to open your mouth, speak the gospel, and see the kingdom advance? This is the way God works. God works through unlikely people and unlikely circumstances. Second, Christianity advances when the gospel is communicated clearly. Look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What do they conclude? God has called us to go to Macedonia and do what? Preach the gospel. That's the ministry. Go and tell. Go and open your mouth and speak the gospel. Right? Now Luke doesn't record what the sermon was. It would have been nice if Luke would have said, look, in, 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 in Corinth, this is the sermon. In Thessalonica, here's Paul's sermon. In, 
In Philippi, here's the sermon. He doesn't do that. Space doesn't allow it. But he does give us the sermon in Athens. And I think he does that because that gives us the pattern. Like, this is the pattern. This is what Paul's preaching to the Gentiles looks like. We have the pattern of what preaching to the Jews looks like. We have the pattern of what preaching to the Greeks looks like. And in our passage here today, we do have sort of an abbreviated version. What does the sermon look like in an abbreviated form? Look at verse 30. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Notice, first of all, the jailer asks the right question. What must I do to be saved? That is the question that the gospel answers. The gospel gives us the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Which, which, which implies several things. I need to be saved. I'm not right with God. I, I, I need to be saved from God. We talk, we talk about being saved. Saved from what? Saved from God. Saved from His wrath. We are not right with God because of our sin. We need to be made right with God. The gospel is the message of how to be right with God because you're not. Right? And uh, I, I've heard it said, I heard someone suggest, the best way to respond to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who comes knocking on your door wanting to talk to you. You know, they often want to talk really long. And sometimes if you have time, it's good to talk really long because if they're talking to you, they're not talking to other people, right? <laughs> One strategy is just let them talk, right? But another, another way to respond, because sometimes you can start chasing, you know, rabbits and you say, where, where do I start and how do we... Here's, here's one way that I've heard that's helpful uh, for talking to a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness. Say to them, okay, I have a hypothetical scenario for you. You and I are sitting on a plane and it is, it is going down and it's going to crash and we're both going to die. And you got one minute to tell me what I need to do to make sure I'm prepared, that I'm right with God so when I die, I'm confident I'm going to heaven. So one minute, tell me what I need to do. Ready, go. And watch them. Uh, they don't have a one-minute gospel. You know, they, they don't have a simple message, how to be saved, how to be right with God. And we do. We've got a one-minute gospel. And it's given to us right here, verse 31. Here's the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's that simple. Now, verse 32 tells us, he, he, they went on and spoke the word of the Lord to him. So they unpacked it. They didn't just say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, we're out of here. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, and let me explain what I mean by that. Let me explain what I mean by believe. Let me explain what I mean by the Lord Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by you will be saved. So they unpacked it. They explained it, which is important. And if you have more than a minute, by all means, you, you unpack it. But if you've only got a minute, you know, here it is. You're not right with God. You need to be. You can be. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. That's the gospel. Very simple message. The key is, are you and I being faithful to communicate the simple message in a simple way to the people that God has placed in our lives? We, we were able to visit several Greek Orthodox churches. This was one in Thessalonica. And we noticed some differences between Greek Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. These, there was a split back in 1054 AD and split over some theological reasons, some political reasons. And there are some key differences between the two, but there's also some similarities between Greek Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism. One of the similarities from my perception 
is that there's not a lot of clarity around the gospel with either Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy. Now, on the Western side, Roman Catholicism, there was a Reformation that happened in the 16th century, and there was a return to the gospel. There was a return to the simple gospel, and we celebrated that several weeks ago. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So there, in the Western side of the equation, there was, thankfully, a return to the simple gospel. On the Eastern side, in Greece, there was no such Reformation. There was no such return to the simple gospel. In fact, they claim that 98% of the country is Greek Orthodox. So think about that. 98% of the population says, I was baptized into the church. 98% of the population says, I am a Christian. 98% of the country says, I am Greek Orthodox. There's literally a cross on their flag. So they think of themselves as a Christian country, a Christian nation. But you get the sense that there's not much clarity around the gospel. There's not much clarity around the simple gospel message. So two quick points of application. First of all, make sure this morning you hear and understand the simple message of the gospel. It's very simple. You're not right with God because of your sin. If you remain in that state, you will die separated from God for an eternity. The good news is God solved that problem. He sent His one and only Son to, to live, to die, and to rise again. The Bible says if you'll believe in Him, trust in Him, depend on Him and His work, you will be saved. You will be right with God. You will be spared from God's wrath. So make sure this morning, if you don't hear anything else, hear that. The good news of the gospel, make sure you're believing it. And secondly, make sure this is your primary message. Make sure the people who are, you're interacting with, this is what they're hearing from your mouth. Make sure this is, when they hear you and they see you being passionate, make sure it's passionate about the gospel. Because this is it. This is central. Our, our main calling is not moral reform. Our main calling is not political reform. Our main calling is the gospel. And so I would encourage you, I'd challenge you, this week, share this message with one person. When's the last time somebody heard from your lips, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Has anybody ever heard that from your lips? Has, has anybody ever heard the gospel from you? Here's my challenge, my encouragement to you this morning. Open your mouth. Share the gospel with one person this week. Share the gospel in such a way that ends with, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what if every one of us did that with just one person? There's roughly 500 people in this worship service combined with the previous worship service. In the room, 500 people. What if all 500 of us took the challenge and went and actually shared the gospel with one person? And what if, what if only 1% of those people responded favorably and trusted in Christ? So that's only 1%. It's five people. We could see five people come to Christ this week. And that's how the gospel advances. It's just from a few people. It's just Lydia. It's just the jailer. People with names, addresses. It's just, it's just that one person. It's just those two people. It's just those five people. That's how the gospel advances. And so God will use us. He wants to continue to advance. He wants to continue to spread the kingdom, the good news, the Christian faith. And He will and He can through us. If you and I will be faithful simply to open our mouths and communicate the simple message of the gospel. 
Third, Christianity advances because true faith bears fruit. In our passage, we see several conversions, and they lead to fruit. And the fruit is what is part of advancing the kingdom. Let me, let me point out several examples of fruit that we see in our passage. First of all, we see baptism as a result of faith. Now, sometimes people accuse Baptists of talking about baptism too much. But look, it's in the story, so what option do we have here but to talk about baptism, right? So I don't apologize this morning for, as a Baptist minister, talking about the importance of baptism. All right? In fact, I'm going to share with you a picture of where it's commonly believed that Lydia was baptized. It's a little river stream with less than a mile outside the city gates of Philippi, and it's kind of believed to be the traditional site of where the baptism took place. It was really pretty. And this next slide is a picture of us gathered there in that area, uh, reading the passage, and they've built, a, they've built something very recently, an area where people can be baptized there. Look at verse 14. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Verse 15, After she was baptized and her household as well. So notice, first of all, that the Lord opened her heart. That's a good, that's a good kind of side point to make. The Lord has to do the work. We can't open people's hearts. People can't open their own hearts. The Lord has to open the heart. That's why we pray before we do evangelism. God, if you don't do this, it's pointless. You have to change their heart. The Lord opened her heart. Verse 15, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she was, she was baptized as a result of putting her faith in Christ. Notice the same thing with the jailer. Look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So one of the first things that happens is both of these believers are baptized. What does baptized mean? It means they were immersed in the water as believers. Now some people will say, look, it says their whole household was also baptized, so clearly that means the infants must have been baptized as well. And therefore, we should baptize our infants of believing parents. And I would push back as a good Baptist and say, first of all, it doesn't say anything about infants here. It just says their household. Why are you assuming there were infants? Right? That's an argument from silence. If it said infants, it'd be a whole different ballgame. It doesn't say infants. It says their household. Secondly, everything about these accounts suggests that the household who was baptized believed, responded with belief. Verse 32 says they spoke the word to all who were in his house. So these were people who were able to hear the word spoken to them. Also notice in verse 34, it says, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So it's the same household that was rejoicing as the same household that was baptized. I'm not seeing too many infants rejoicing. <laughs> From my experience with my four, right? wasn't a lot of rejoicing happening when they were infants. Nevertheless, for these reasons... For these reasons, we do believe and practice and, and put an emphasis even on what is called believer's baptism. Baptism, being immersed in the water as a believer, a person who has faith, who is trusting in Christ. And we would love to talk with you. If you have never experienced believer's baptism, we would love to talk to you about that and talk more about why we practice that and what that means. But I just want you to notice mostly baptism happens as a fruit of faith. Secondly, personal evangelism happens as a result of faith. 
Both of these people, Lydia and the Philippian jailer, after they come to faith in Christ, what do they do? They go back to their households. They go back to their family. They go back to the people that God has sovereignly placed in their life. They are the best evangelists for their family, right? They don't need to be a professional evangelist come in at this point. They've got the evangelist, the person they know, the Philippian jailer, Lydia. You, you are the best evangelist for the people that God has placed in your life. You may say, you know, God hadn't called me to go to Europe and plant churches all over the place. Probably not. He doesn't call too many people to do that kind of work. But He has called you. I can say with confidence, God has called you as a Christian to be an evangelist, to open your mouth and share the gospel with the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life, your household, your co-workers, your friends at school. God has you there for a reason. We're called to just be faithful to share that reason with them. Third, we see costly hospitality happen as a result of faith. Lydia is referred to as a seller of purple goods in verse 14. This indicates she had money. She had resources. And she used her resources and she leveraged them for the gospel, for the church. Um, Verse 15, she says, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then come to my house and stay. She obviously has a house big enough to house them. And she says, look, if you believe I'm really trusting in Christ and you've judged me to have true faith, will you please let me use my resources and my money for the sake of the gospel? Can I please house you and, and show hospitality to you, costly, sacrificial Christian hospitality? It's evidence of true faith that causes the gospel to advance. Look at verse 40, Acts 16. So they went out of the prison. This is Paul and Silas leaving the prison. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say the church at Philippi started in Lydia's house. She opened her house to be the house church of Philippi. And that's where the church happened. That's where the church met, I assume. Perhaps they continued to meet down by the river. Perhaps on rainy days, snowy days. Uh, They met there in her house. We see costly hospitality as a result of faith that leads to advancement of the gospel. Notice also the costly hospitality that we see from the Philippian jailer. Look at verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He nursed them. The Philippian jailer turned around and expended his resources, got his stuff bloodied, and messy, and he leveraged what he had for the sake of the gospel, and he nursed them. He he healed them. Verse 34, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He fed them. See? True faith is authenticated by costly hospitality. And costly hospitality leads to further advancement of the gospel. That's the point. And I just want to highlight and say thank you for the costly ways that you've been working together to advance the gospel. Uh, Jay mentioned several examples earlier, the the turkey drive. We we collected money over the past couple weeks to go toward raising money so we could provide a Thanksgiving meal for the Springs Rescue Mission, a homeless ministry here in town, Christian ministry. And as Jay mentioned, we we raised enough money to purchase 10,723 pounds of turkey or over 750 turkeys. So many of our homeless 
citizens and friends will be eating Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving Day at the Springs Rescue Mission, uh, largely because of your generosity. So thank you very much. Uh, Also, we are in the process of collecting Operation Christmas Child boxes. Our goal is 23,000. We are a distribution center, and so a lot of the boxes that come through Colorado Springs come through us. And today, tomorrow's the last day. And so if you haven't done that, that'd be a great way to partner together in a costly way, minimal cost, but cost, in order to try to advance the gospel. And third, we are trying to raise $100,000 for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. These monies go to our IMB missionaries serving around the world. Our goal has been $100,000 the past several years, and we have met that goal. We've exceeded that goal, and, uh, and we hope to, to meet and exceed it again this year as well. And finally, I would mention we are, we are exceeding our budget. We, we have a certain budget that we've set, uh, and we are, we've spent significantly less than it, but we've been given significant, or not significant, about 2% more than the budget. And so we're doing well. And I just want to say thank you for your sacrificial giving. And uh, so we as a church are doing really well in this. And, and, and now I want to kind of transition and talk about personal. The, the holidays are coming up, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It's a great opportunity for you to practice costly hospitality right where you are, your neighborhood, your neighbors, your people at work, your people at school. How might God be leading you to expend, to leverage what's yours, leverage your resources, leverage your experience, your opportunity, leverage right where you are for the sake of the gospel, to serve someone, bless them, and look for a way to share with them. This is authentic faith leads to fruit, which is a part of advancing the gospel. And uh, this brings us to the fourth and the final uh, observation. We see them partnering with other believers in a New Testament church as a result of faith. As a result of their faith, they partner together in a local New Testament church. Here's the point. When Paul goes through Philippi, he doesn't just go there to see a handful of converts made and then press on to the next town. He goes there to see converts so that the converts will come together and form a church, a New Testament church. That's what's significant of what happens at Philippi and all across Europe. The churches are formed. It's the church at Philippi. It's the church he will write to, what we call the letter to the Philippians. It's just a letter to the church. And and in that letter to the Philippians, Paul is the most affectionate that he is to any other church. How they partnered with him from the first day of the gospel and how they supported him throughout his ministry. And he's writing to say, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. It's actual people with actual addresses meeting in an actual city, in an actual home, where the gospel came through because of Paul, and even in his absence, and especially in his absence, the church continued to grow, to thrive, to do ministry, and that's how the gospel advances. Authentic faith leads to authentic fruit, which leads to furthering of the gospel. I've heard the example of charcoals. You know, you put charcoals together and light a fire, that fire will last a while. It'll burn long. You spread those charcoals out individually, independently of each other, and that fire will go out quickly. In fact, that's what you do. You're backpacking. You spread the fire out so that there's not a fire. So, you know, you you don't cause forest fires. You wake up the next morning and you're really cold and you want a fire again. What do you do? Put those coals back together. And a lot of times they're still hot. Put them back together, fan the flame a little bit, and create a fire. They need each other for there to be a fire. That's the point. 
an isolated, lonely charcoal, piece of charcoal is going to burn out fast. And here's the point. If you're, if you're not on fire for the Lord, if you're not bearing the fruit that we're talking about here, ask yourself this question. Is it because you're disconnected from the fire? Are you disconnected from other charcoal? Right? The, the Christian life is not intended to be lived in isolation. It's intended to be lived in partnership so that we encourage one another to love and good deeds, fellowship, encouragement, serving one another. This is where the fan is flamed. And when the fan is flamed, the, fan, the flame is able to advance and spread. And that's the story of the Christian faith. It started in this one little pocket in the Middle East, little country, small country, and miraculously spread westward all across Europe like wildfire. And it reached even to us in North America. Here we are thousands of years later. Why? Because the fire spread. And today it's continuing to spread. Interestingly, not in the places where it spread before. It's pretty cold, pretty dark in the places where it spread before, but it's advancing in other parts of the world miraculously all right, through these simple means. And, and, and you and I are here today because of this. Right? And it's, it's the simple message of how a person can be right with God. And so two things. First of all, I hope you hear this message and respond to it today with faith. You're not right with God. You can be. How? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Secondly, you get to be a part of advancing the flame, advancing the fire, advancing the light to the nations. Say, how do I do that? It happens. You don't necessarily have to be a missionary to Europe who plants churches like Paul. It just happens in the ordinary, normal, mundane, humble circumstances that you're already in right now. The very doctor appointments and conversations you're having right now. Right where you are. Whatever's going on in your life right now, that's where it is. The people who are right there in your life, that's who God's calling you to. And all it requires is for you to be faithful. If you have authentic faith, the authentic faith leads to authentic fruit. And it's simple. It's not You don't have to get up and preach big sermons. It's simple. It's just things like faithfulness to personal evangelism. Faithfulness to costly hospitality. Faithfulness to partnering together with God's people to advance this incredible message. Let's pray.